Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. Yes, this is Leanne Nguyen welcoming you to Voice America. Um, The announcer said to you, asked you, you know, have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? Well, you're talking to someone, you're listening to someone who asks herself that all the time. (laughs) It's one of those existential quirks of mine. And so I have been pondering that with you. And uh, today, this week, I will continue to do so, to share with you uh, my thoughts and my um, observations throughout the years. Last week, I spoke about my encounter with a patient, a survivor of um, communism in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. I described to you uh, the case to show the nature of quote-unquote survival. You know, this particular man, and like many others that I have listened to, who have gone through terrible loss and life-changing experiences, helped me understand what it means, what it takes to survive to, quote-unquote, function and prosper according to the dictionary definition of survive. Now, with these patients, I have learned two things that I have taken with with me into my personal life as well as into my listening to other patients. One is that the person who has survived a terrible thing, uh, a person who has gone through any kind of life-changing, self-destroying experience, That person will try to tell the rest of us about how hard it is to trust and to love again, about how terrifying it is to believe again in the possibility of goodness and happiness after he has been ruthlessly, uncontrollably acquainted with people's cruelty and and with, with life's inherent unpredictability and uncontrollability. As that patient from last week said to me, you're born and you die. And in between, everything can be taken away from us at any time for no reason that makes sense. Most of us are spared that uncomfortable reality, that unflinching knowledge about what life can do. Those people, though, who have gone through that and have survived are left with the dilemma of how to tell, how to share that knowledge with the rest of us. For these people, the hardest part of the trauma continues in the aftermath. How to speak of their experience in a way that can be heard. How to tell others about what they know in a way that can be received and can make them feel, again, part of the community of humans. And also they have to figure out, you know, how to go on living while knowing that you can be dead while alive. When you go through a traumatic experience, when you are faced with a terrible, overwhelming blow, you have to figure out a way to stay alive. You have to mobilize whatever you are capable of to endure the blow. But as I said, what about the afterwards? What is the task that you have to manage? The task 
is to recover, to regain whatever that had been destroyed, whatever you had to shut down and put away. You have to mobilize your sense of faith in people's goodness, faith in your own lovability, your own worth, in your own faith that life does still potentially, possibly hold some goodness and beauty for you to partake. The loss of faith, the fear of life, the fear of people's capacity to hurt you again, that is the difficulty for people who have been hurt, who have been forced to know too much, too well about how one can be destroyed. You know, all of us in this life have at some point endured loss, have suffered terrible disappointment. That's inevitable. We can all relate to the dilemma of whether to speak or to stay silent about that experience, whether to tell the world, those around us, so that we do not remain alone, imprisoned, and isolated in that experience. But then there is the risk in speaking, the risk of being ignored, unheard, and feeling even more alone and hurt all over again. So the dilemma between the natural life-saving human instinct towards telling, letting others see the wound so that they can tend to us, versus the potentially life-destroying danger of encountering indifference or further cruelty and having your wound be stomped on again. That's the dilemma. To remain a ghost or to risk dying, to risk being wounded again, to stay hidden, protected, by the old familiar wound and not grow, not be alive, or to step back into life and grow and be transformed, but risk being hurt, being destroyed again. Such is the dilemma for any of us who has been wounded. That means to all of us. (laughs) And because I'm not just talking about the wound of torture or war, I'm talking about the wounds that life deals us a toxic love affair, the loss of a child, a betrayal, the destruction of a career, anything. The second thing that I have learned from being with people whose lives have been derailed and who struggle to join the community of humans is that the connection with people is what is most longed for and what is most feared. You know, we people our species of humans. We can do tremendous damage to one another. Just look around you, turn on the news, listen, watch. But we're also the gift, the medicine, the salvation for one another. Just look around you also and watch and listen. Do you know that solitary confinement is the one most effective tool of punishment of mind destruction in prison? And do you know that the one factor that saves orphans, abandoned babies from a life of self-destructiveness and deadness is whether they were held and talked to? Do you know that letters, communications from the outside, contact with the outside, with people, are the most cherished and life-sustaining mechanism for prisoners? The only way back to life is through people, the connection with other human beings. There is no fancy treatment program, no sophisticated medication, 
don't be fooled by the promises of advanced technology and 21st century medicine. It's old-fashioned. It's basic. The source of our misery and destruction is rooted in people. We suffer from what others do to us. We destroy each other. But conversely, the repair lies in what others can do for us, with us. We can vanquish much of our fear and hopelessness by connecting with other people, speaking to them, being heard by them, showing them our hurts and letting them love us, inviting, understanding and loving, and allowing the light of their kindness, the touch of tenderness into the dark crack of our wounds. One question that emerges from this show often, which even one listener has asked me directly a few weeks ago, is what makes life worth living? If we unpack that question, if we burrow ourselves into trying to answer that question, I think that we come to ask ourselves about, one, the things that sustain us in this life, the the joys and pleasures that save us, that heal us and push us forward into life. We also have to reflect on the things that are essential, the vital task that we engage in, which cannot be dispensed of, which sustains life. And my answer to the listener who asked me that question was, and still is, people. (laughs) People. What I mean What I meant when I stated that answer was that contact with people is what makes life worth living for me. And it was an acknowledgement of what I cannot, of what we cannot escape from, each other, people. In that statement, in that answer, I I also want to acknowledge the thing, the experience, the force that moves our growth, that facilitates transformation, that teaches, enriches, and nourishes us in this life. And conversely, I also wanted to talk, to acknowledge inherently the thing that inherently can empty us out or devastate us. And that thing is the relationship, the contact that we have with each other. From the moment of birth, we need the touch, the sounds, the contact with people. And as we grow, we rely on the contact with others, caretakers, parents, teachers, peers. We learn from our experience with them. Our growth and and, and evolution are shaped by the experience with other people. I want you to go back to your life experiences and take stock of the life-changing, significant experiences that you have. Whether it was devastating, shocking, or joyful, or transporting, and you, I bet you will find people. I also said in answering the question about what makes life worth living, uh, that I find myself, I get to know myself through my contact, my experience with people. Because when we speak, and the other person listens and speaks back, we find out something about what we said from the other person's recognition of our words, of our story. We find out whether we're truly, totally recognized or misperceived. The other person's recognition, 
the match, the synchronicity between what you say, what you mean to say, and what the other person is willing to hear can be tremendously life-boosting. It can help affirm your reality, your grasp on your experience, your grasp of yourself. Or if there is no recognition of your experience, if there is a negation of your meaning, a gap between your desire to say something and the other person's capacity to hear, that gap can be illuminating of what you need to do to protect yourself, what needs protection. It can also be motivating to find a better, a different bridge to the other person. It can trigger your curiosity about unknown shores that your mind has not thought of or your heart has not dared to visit. Or that gap can destroy you. It can make you give up on the world, on life, on yourself. Either way, you find out who you are in this life, what you have to do in this world in order to stay safe and sane and alive. So when I say contact with people is what makes my life worth living, I'm saying that my life, that life in this world, on this earth, that is claimed by billions of human beings, cannot be lived without making contact with people, right? Because since birth, as I said, being human means being cared for by people, learning to be with people. A person's life is shaped by the contacts that he has made with others. His humanity is made up of the connections that he has stepped into. And just as much, his humanity is defined by how he refuses the connection with other human beings. So today, I would like to continue making that case by telling you about my experience with another man. My experience with this man taught me about how a person survives overwhelming loss by developing an emotional armor that is designed to ward off any sense of vulnerability to defeat any tenderness or kindness from other human beings. That armor of invulnerability helps him survive helplessness and insignificance. But it also costs him his humanity and deprives him of the possibility of love and the possibility of being in this life in a loving and loved way. I will call him Ravi. I'm disguising all the details heavily here. Um, I call him Ravi, let's say, from a Middle Eastern country ravaged by civil war and repression. Unlike the man I described last week, Mr. Lei from Vietnam, this man, Ravi, was much engaged in life. He was animated, driven by a great purpose. He made connections. He was articulate. He even sought out connections with people to tell his story. But just like that elderly Vietnamese survivor, this young man had also been crushed by life and terribly hurt. Both men are of the same tribe. They belong to the same league, that of people who long to be recognized and to belong. But they are thwarted by their inability to bear the risk of disappointment and the possibility of feeling vulnerable again. And so, they both retreat from life, turn away from the pursuit of real, intimate, reciprocal relationships. They both 
at some point made a decision to step away from the faith in the possibility of being loved, of being touched, of being nourished by the connection with other humans. They both refuse to acknowledge and to honor their desire to be seen and heard and, God forbid, to be loved and accepted. They both express their humanity in a way that makes it nearly impossible for others to hear, to recognize, and to love them. When I met Ravi, he was around 40. He had come to the U.S. on a student visa to pursue a Ph.D. After completing his degree and spending a few years in the workforce and gaining full legal status in this country, uh, he came to New York City. And even though he knew many people who cared for him, he checked himself into a homeless shelter where he was to live for close to two years. His goal in coming specifically to New York City, where the UN headquarters are, was to be resettled by Denmark to go there as a refugee of the US. He basically applied for asylum in Denmark, asking the Danish government to grant him protection against the United States of America. Ah, his request was, as you can guess, turned down. After which Ravi went on a public hunger strike in order to protest the rejection and to pressure the UN to intervene on his case. This hunger strike was seen as evidence of self-harm, and so he was brought into a psychiatric hospital. And there, a bargain was struck. Ravi would agree to eat again and not die and accept to see a therapist. In exchange, the hospital would ask the United Nations um, High Commissioner for Refugee Resettlement to review his case. And that's how I met him. Let me take a break here, and when we come back... I will tell you more about what unfolded. Be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? 
how are they formed, how they work out, and why they sometimes don't. Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. All right. Welcome back to me and Robbie. I was telling you about him uh, who had gone on a hunger strike in order to force the UN and the Danish consulate to resettle him in Denmark uh, in order to be free of the oppression imagined or uh, real that he was experiencing in the US. So everybody who was involved, the shelter, the hospital, the consulate, human rights agencies, Everybody wanted to make sure that this man would not die, so they tried to plead with him to force him into eating. Um, Everybody wanted him to behave, to be normal, and go away into a normal life and not be so disturbing, so incomprehensible, and frankly, so aggravating. But nobody asked him why. He was pursuing this quixotic quest for asylum in a Scandinavian country, him, a brown Muslim man, where he didn't know the language, the culture, even an acquaintance. So I ended up being uh, his therapist back then, um, and still a little bit now, but I have moved on to other patients, other works. But back then, you know, I had the reputation of taking on um, and sitting down with patients that nobody would touch or care for. So I was the lucky therapist. And I was lucky indeed, because he was an extremely intelligent considerate, sweet man, very engaged and respectful, but stubborn and argumentative as hell, though. From the first session, he announced clearly his goal. He needed to go to Denmark as a full-fledged refugee or sacrifice his life to another hunger strike. What was the point of seeing me then, of being in quote-unquote therapy, I asked him. The answer? I need you to get my story right and record it for humanity after I'm gone. What was his story? Ravi's first encounter with violence was as a young student in his native country. He demonstrated in support of workers on strike, and when the police cracked down, he was beaten nearly to death. And before he passed out, he had seen several people killed by hand grenades. And so he became radicalized and an active dissident against the government. As a result, for much of his 20s, Ravi was constantly threatened and frequently detained and beaten. And when the repression was at its most intense, his parents asked him to leave their family home in order to spare the rest of them the association by guilt and the stress of being under surveillance and harassed, so on. Think about which wound cut deeper. In the meantime, Ravi managed to persist with his studies. 
He graduated from a prestigious university with one of the best national results. He wanted to pursue his passion, which was physics, and go into academia. But his parents asked him to go into engineering and get a job. He complied and finished his degree with the highest distinction, but could only get a technical job at a small private firm because of his political record. So Ravi spoke to me of the political turmoil and the violence that he had endured in a very matter-of-fact, stoic, unemotional way. But when he spoke about the disappointment of his career, it was with much pain and bitterness. He almost flinched, you know, when he said to me, years of exceptional studies had been completely wasted and only led me to a second-rate job. I could see that for this man, the blow that was most hurtful was the suppression of his passions, the thwarting of his agency. For this man, in possession of so much intelligence and persistence, what was wounding, apparently, was the continual derailment of his sense of agency and the continual smashing of his passions. Now, Ravi was able to get sort of in the proximity of his dream of academia through a part-time teaching job, but he continued to get special visits from the government and was told that he would never get a faculty position because of his record. So he began to look for a way to leave his country. And because of his exceptional mind, he gained admission to an American graduate program. And so he left for the U.S. on a student visa, leaving behind his fiancée. When he was gone studying in the U.S., his parents burned all his personal effects, anything that would document his life as an activist and would incriminate the family. So basically, his life story in his native country was completely erased. Ravi came back for a visit about six, eight months after that. And by then, the political repression in his country had definitely worsened. And his family, again out of fear, asked him to stay away. And he, he witnessed mass executions in the streets, he told me, saw bodies burning in mass graves. Some of them he recognized as former classmates or neighbors. So he left the country for good, this time with a one-way ticket, because he explained to me that, quote, the motherland had turned her back to me on that visit. I had nothing left there. So in the U.S., Ravi finished his Ph.D. and was joined by his fiancé. They got married, uh, both got naturalized, um, and they were both in possession you know, of great skills, advanced degrees, and bound for a secure, good life. The good American dream was waiting for them. But then the marriage fell apart because, according to Ravi, they wanted different things. She wanted the American dream of making money, while he wanted something else. It seemed that it was then that some kind of tipping point had been reached. He assessed his life in the following way for me. I was unable to return to my country. I was not willing to be a member of this society of the U.S. I no longer wanted to stay in the U.S. or be employed here to participate in the capitalism, the oppression of this country. I had to leave everything. You know, no mention of the rejection by his wife. So he picked Denmark as the ultimate, the sole destination for his life now. Denmark, in his mind, was a paradise. 
the epitome of justice and tolerance and equality. America was the evil place where his basic humanity was crushed. Denmark had a history of taking in persecuted victims of Nazi Germany. It was a paradise over there where he would not have to suffer any disappointment or oppression. His purpose in life now was to be in this Scandinavian society that apparently, according to him, would meet his ideals and would recognize and protect his humanity. He insisted that, quote, only in such a society would I be able to get rid of the fear that had paralyzed my life and return to a normal, productive life with purpose and dignity. So many hurts, as you can see, so many disappointments, so many times he was crushed and had to get back up on his feet. So many times he tried and was abandoned or thwarted. He alluded to that paralyzing fear, but he didn't elaborate. He wouldn't tell me what the fear had been. But he had resolved to no longer hope, trust, or tolerate any compromise, anything less than absolute recognition of his rights and needs for respect and freedom. So, the solution to all the disappointments that he had suffered, the abandonment and rejection, the solution to all of those blows, now was to look for a fantasy of a perfect society. You know, no mention of relationship. After being relentlessly beaten down and continually derailed by life, this man was now driven toward a fantasy where he would not be disappointed or crushed ever again. In the meantime, in his life in in the U.S., he engaged in situations after situations that ended up confirming his sense of himself as deprived, disrespected, and unheard. By choosing to pursue such an impossible goal, what do I mean I by what do I mean by impossible? You know, like to seek asylum in Denmark for being persecuted by America. <laughs> I mean, come on, what are the chances? So, by waging this campaign in a relentless and public and quite provocative way, he certainly was able to draw an enormous amount of attention and concern, and even care from people. But he also set it up in such a way that his demands would not, could not be met, and would thus eventually confirm his status as rejected and oppressed. He was, as you can guess, rejected by Denmark several times. He was eventually ignored by the UN. He was rejected you know, gotten rid of by the staff at the homeless shelter who had turned him over to the mental health psychiatric system. And in turn, he was oppressed uh, by the mental health system, which forcibly hospitalized him, and on and on. Nowhere in this masochistic quest did he mention to people, really, the rejection and the oppression that he had originally suffered that his, in his motherland, as he called it, that with his family, that with his wife, all the rejection in the hands of these people. The people whom he had loved, 
who undoubtedly had cared for him, were treated as dead, irrelevant, barely mentionable. The hurts, the personal hurts, were ignored. They were treated as irrelevant. Even as he kept setting up situations that would repeat the same story of rejection and abandonment over and over again. So, in a nutshell, this man was telling the story of his loss through his act of protest. And he was showing his fear of hurt and disappointment through the drive for perfect recognition and for the perfect shelter from disappointment. He was also persisting in confirming again and again the sense of himself as deprived and destroyed and pathologized and ultimately an outcast. Reviled, he was. Rejected and defeated repeatedly. Such was the man that Ravi had been reduced to during the earlier years of his life. And this was the man that he insisted on showing to the world again and again, except that now he was in control. Now it was his choice to do so, to be so. Now his suffering was not infused with helplessness and hurt, but was his control, his doing, even his purpose. His suffering and isolation were now the confirmation of his values and gave him a sense of purpose and, perversely, of validation. Denmark, as I said to you, continued to reject his quest for asylum. The UN declined to take his appeal. So he went on another hunger strike. He announced to me, I deserved to be heard. I deserved the best. But I got nothing. So now I have no choice. I want to be as much of a burden to the system as possible so that they will have to get rid of me. He was saying to the world, to society, either you recognize my plight, my needs, or I'm going to turn away from you. Because you reject me, I'm going to force you to get rid of me. Either you are my perfect salvation and allow me to rest in your perfect shelter, or you are just another, the latest oppressor, and the reason for me to turn away from humanity. So he started another hunger strike, this time on the step of a, um, he literally brought himself on the steps of a prestigious teaching hospital so that he would be admitted. And he wanted to be, he wanted to offer himself and to force people to basically study him as a special specimen uh, for medical studies on the effects of starvation. Um, But he was ignored, basically turned down by that hospital. They did not want to take him in. Um, So he brought himself to an emergency room for psychiatric care. There, they also refused to admit him because by this time, Ravi was a known um, persona non grata throughout New York City um, sort of agencies and and, and public systems. Um, So what did he do? He he wanted to be admitted. And I mean, this man was of such tremendous will. You know, he went to the cafeteria of that 
hospital and grabbed a plastic fork and publicly uh, started making stabbing motion um, towards his throat. And so, of course, the hospital had to admit him for, quote-unquote, suicide attempts. You know, it's sometimes this country really uh, boggles me, my mind. Um, just, it's all about liability, really. Anyway, so here was this man, you know, saying, I'm going to kill myself with a plastic fork. Um, so they admitted him. Um, the, the psychiatrist there diagnosed him as a psychotic uh, they wanted to put him on antipsychotic medications, you know, to get him to be sane, to be normal again. <laughs> and, of course, he refused. Um, and so they engaged with him further. You know, you see, he got the attention, the engagement that he wanted. But the engagement was of such a violent, incomprehending nature. Uh, confirming for him again that no matter what he did, he would not be heard. So they engaged with him. They dragged him to court for the right to force him into medications because, you see, he was by now definitely finally deemed to be insane and psychotic. Um, Let me break for now, and um, we'll be back in a few minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. All right. Hello again, everyone. So here was this man who had gone through terrible things and reduced to almost uh, a depraved level of, of derailment of existence in his native country because of his political activism. Here he was trying to force the system society in America where he was supposedly a free agent, forcing everyone around him um, into engaging with him in a very violent, oppressive way um, because he wanted to go on a hunger strike. He wanted to starve himself in order to gain um, so-called freedom and respect in a whole other country. So he was hospitalized, as I told you, where he was diagnosed basically as, as insane, as psychotic. Um, in a way, he was, <clears throat> you know, in his refusal to see what uh, the effect that he was having on people in, in, in the goal that he was pursuing that was impossible to achieve. And yet, was he really insane and psychotic? You know, not, not really. All he had done was to succeed in proving himself again and again, the victim of violation and oppression. He has succeeded in reducing himself once again to the state of being dehumanized. Um, but he was, I don't think that, well, he was not insane. Uh, on, the, on the psychiatric ward where he was supposedly receiving treatment, Ravi continued to refuse medications and other forms of treatment. When they had dragged him to court, you know, to present a case to uh, a judge that he needed medication, uh, Ravi won the case because let's not forget, this was an extremely intelligent person, very perceptive and perspicacious, you know, um, and uh, all he had to, to do was to prove that he was in full possession of his faculty and he knew what he was doing and that he could take responsibility for himself. And of course, he, he, he was, he could. Um, so no medications could be forced on him, but he continued to refuse other treatments. He also refused to admit that he understood the danger of starvation and he refused to agree to seek therapy um, if he uh, would leave the hospital. And by this time, he had lost about 20-plus pounds, reducing himself to a skeleton, basically. So all of this made it impossible legally for the hospital to discharge him, even though you know they were not really doing much with him or could do much with him. Um, so... They, you know, what they did was uh, they shipped him off to a long-term state hospital. This had nothing to do with recognition or responsibility. It was more about, you know, liability and 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 and, and helplessness, basically, on the the uh, on the part of the hospital. So a long-term state hospital um, is the last stop you know, the last stop in the mental health psychiatric uh, life uh, is the last stop that's designed to house and treat patients who are deemed to be chronically mentally ill and, and who are determined to be basically intractable 
uncurable. Um, but they would require permanent psychiatric care because they are viewed to be or proven to be incapable of functioning in society. And Ravi made himself incapable of functioning by refusing to work, refusing to have relationships, refusing to go along with the rules and norms of society. So that's where Ravi ended up. He would occasionally write to me. Um, by then, you know, by this time we had stopped working together because once he was hospitalized, he was out of my hands, you know, and um, it was just me alone, a little Asian lady, <laughs> you know, trying to tell his story against a whole system. Um, but he would, he would keep in touch with me and write to me describing the conditions as inhumane and oppressive and barbaric and, and so on. So the end of this story, as far as I knew, you know, that, that I could witness, was that this man had found himself eventually in a kind of permanent home, a shelter, where he was receiving free care and chronic attention. He was indeed taken in and taken care of. But his individuality had been erased, and his attempt to speak of his hurts and fears had been reduced to an illness and had resulted in his being marginalized for good. During our time together, you should know, Ravi would mostly engage with me in, in long ideological debates, you know, and, and torturous philosophical exposés about the evils of capitalist society and the cruelty of man and the futility of human relationships. He would insist that there was nothing else worth talking about, that he had no expectations of me, that he was not invested in our engagement with each other in any way because nothing meaningful could happen. Again and again, he would insist, week after week, hour after hour, that there was no way I could make a difference in his life, and that there was only one purpose, one thing to pursue in this life, and that was to go to Denmark to be free of the quote-unquote corrupted, oppressive people in his life, in this society. But occasionally, you know, briefly, his, his militant, nihilistic stance would crack occasionally. And he would acknowledge feeling lonely, wishing to be understood, and realizing that his life was, quote, unquote, going down the drain. But those brief cracks did not open up, did not yield to any light, any softening, towards vulnerability or intimate contact or curiosity about life. He refused to engage in anything personal, saying that it's irrelevant. The personal is irrelevant. He dismissed his wants and needs as unproductive. He described his state of being, his emotional and existential condition as, quote, verbatim here because this was burned into my heart, needing nothing wanting nothing, not being attached to anyone or any country. Once he disclosed to me that he used to have terrible rage about all that had happened to him, all that he had lost. But then he explained, he said, I got rid of it. I've trained myself 
nothing bothers me much now. Essentially, he was making a statement about the intention, even the, the pride in the effort to not be human. At the same time, he was also making an attempt to deny others, to deny me the chance to be human with him. My humanity in the form of my opinions, my expressions of care for him, my needs for compromise or a dialogue, all of that was dismissed as irrelevant or even contemptible. He was utterly unwilling to compromise. And worst of all, he would be quite rejecting and scornful whenever I became too real or personal or got too close to him. People, and myself was included, had to be kept in the category of oppressors to fight against, adversaries to defeat. Any possibility of receiving kindness was dismissed and equated with being, quote, indebted. Loving contact, any offering of tenderness was equated with complications or foolishness, something to be smashed up with scorn and skepticism. This was a tragedy, but a quite common tragedy, because when ruthlessly crushed by cruelty and disappointment, the belief in goodness and in the possibility of being seen and loved is then replaced by the expectation of abandonment and oppression. The wish for love and acceptance is then replaced by the pursuit of injustice and rejection. When you are confronted too early, too severely, too ruthlessly with the realization of your insignificance and helplessness, you will be left with a desperate need to demonstrate your autonomy and to deny your fear and longing. So what you would do if you were such a man in that situation, you would retreat into a stance of, of defining yourself as immune to, in, to, to vulnerability, as, as exempted from the concerns and wants of normal, no, normal and, and mortal humans, as having absolute mastery of the purpose and the meaning of your life. Ravi made himself impervious to the concern and experience of ordinary human endeavors, such as work, love, joy, need. He positioned himself as not human, that is, as being above compromise. He also devoted tremendous energy into creating situations that caused violence and scrutiny, which would have broken any other ordinary man. But such was his purpose and his need. He needed to prove his position in this life as a martyr, as a victim of others' ignorance, indifference. He needed to tell the story over and over again of his plight as an outcast. The wish for love had been replaced by the pursuit of injustice and rejection. From being tossed around and repeatedly hurt and thwarted, this man had made it a point to make pain controllable and disappointment, rejection, predictable. From being confronted with his insignificance in the vast political chessboard, he made it a point to be special and significant by making himself a special sick case, a burden. 
From being rejected by family and wife and motherland, he devoted his life to forming connections with the world where his protests would receive attention, but his plea for acceptance and love would not be heard because it was so disguised. And because the need for love and recognition is so buried under the desperate effort to show invulnerability, to not be human. At one point, Ravi cried out to me that this life is so stupid. I had worked so hard. I have so much to offer. All of that, dreaming, working, and planning are of no use to me. You know, what would it mean for this man to be cured? What did he need from us? What would it take for him to become human again? Was he insane or just like us in his fears and longings, only more broken in his solutions to these longings? <sighs> Ravi was deemed psychotic and insane. At its most basic level, you know, the diagnosis meant to convey that he did not grasp reality and did not make sense to the rest of mankind. Did he really not make sense, not grasp reality? Or did the rest of us in society at that time, did we fail to grasp his sense? Did he not make sense or did society fail to make sense of him? You know, one definition of survival, as I quote it to you, is to function and prosper. Ravi survived the atrocities in his native country. He survived the displacement and the challenges of immigration, but he did not function or prosper. But he did have a purpose, a tremendous drive. He was saying to life, to society, you have bent my life to your ruthless political winds, your arbitrary rules, your whims and laws. No more. I'm now going to devote my life to bend to you, to my will and values. The Sufi poet Rumi said, the wound is where the light enters. We find meaning and purpose in surviving the hardship, in living through the wounds of life. For men like Ravi, the wounding did provide a purpose, the light for his life. When he was finally a free agent, when he was finally poised for survival, this wounded man made his purpose the confirmation that he was not free, that he was fated to be oppressed and wounded again and again. When he was finally able to exert his agency and live his purpose, he chose to make himself inhuman, untouchable. And he chose to pursue the impossible, which is perfect recognition, unconditional acceptance, absolute validation. In the process, he rejected all offerings from society and fellow human beings because they are imperfect and they come burdened with demands for compromise and for reciprocity because they come with the risk of disappointment. He desperately wanted to be heard and recognized. But the tragedy is that he made himself incomprehensible and unrecognizable. The tragedy is that so much energy was misspent so much creativity was misdirected, and a life that had been derailed was then directed willfully by a self-destructive purpose. But amidst all of this fighting was the telling about the wounding that he had received and the reaching for love and for life. I have to close now, and we'll join you again next week to continue this conversation. 
Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.